Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to Web 3.0 Applied, where you can use all of this knowledge that has been shared to you and apply it practically into whatever you are doing in the Web 3 space regarding cryptocurrencies and all of the other stuff. Uh, well, I'm Alistair. I'm moderating the session. Our guest for today is Lois Koff, and the topic that he's going to be talking about is the most requested topic on every townhouse session. Finally, we are doing it, tokenomics. Yes, guys, tokenomics. Uh, I had recently reached out to uh, the token. Uh, I had just joined in the tokenomics DAO to reach out to Lois Koff. And uh, turns out he's a principal there. And he had also done a session with us uh, on Twitter. If you haven't seen it, if the recording's available, then go go ahead and just watch it. It's it's amazing. So like you know, just go ahead and tokenomics DAO. And tokenomics DAO is basically a community that creates tons of you know uh, quality content and offers consulting and is working on building DIY tokenomic tools. Okay. So, like, you know, if you do check out uh, a tokenomics DAO as well. Uh, well, uh, let's just um, jump straight into into it. Okay, uh, so, Lois, yep. what yeah, is tokenomics? So much, uh, can you, like, run us down for that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the intro. Um, yeah, of course, what is tokenomics, right? That's on everybody's mind. Um, the the thing that everybody says is oh it's the combination of tokens and economics right so well, what does that mean I think it's I mean obviously that's how the word was created but I think it's, a, it's that's not a definition of what it means right um, although it's also not wrong but basically in tokenomics we're trying to study um, incentive design so any token any coin in the end is is um, is an economic system that is trying to get people to do certain actions and that can be uh, and those are usually aligned or they're supposed to be aligned with the goals of the project right and so basically projects uh, will launch a token and they say hey this is what we're doing you know define that and then they use the token to motivate people to help them achieve that goal whatever it might be um, and usually the way incentives work is that you have to give, you know, there's, there's carrots and sticks, right? Stick is you punish people or carrot is you reward people. Turns out rewards work a lot better than punishments, um, although there's, there's definitely places for both. Um, and so tokenomics essentially is, try, yeah, is trying to explain, is trying to structure this process of, okay, how do you incentivize people or actors in the market to do certain things? So tokenomics is all about incentive design. So if anybody asks you, hey, what's tokenomics? You say, well, it's using cryptocurrencies to uh, design incentive designs that are favorable for communities, projects, uh, apps, whatever. Um, yeah, and so that goes straight to the second question, right? Because I just sent cryptocurrencies. And I think in general, people know what cryptocurrencies are. Um, but I figured it's, uh, it's good to define it again quickly. Um, and so I'm just going to read really quick the, the definition from Oxford Dictionary, and so um, and then we'll discuss it. So cryptocurrency is a digital currency in which transactions are verified and records maintained by a decentralized system using cryptography rather than by a decentralized authority. Um, so this is this is absolutely good definition, um, and we'll just dissect it quickly. So. Digital currencies, right? So there's, there's quite frankly not very many currencies left in the world that aren't digital on some level. Like even fiat currencies have gone increasingly digital. I mean, the banking system is mostly digital, let's say. Although, of course, things like cash still exist. Um, but I think we can all tell governments don't want it to exist much longer because they don't like people being able to transact anonymously. Um, which is probably a big reason for the Web3 movement, um, because in general, what cryptocurrencies usually operate on decentralized ledgers, which are called blockchains, right? And um, decentralized ledgers have existed before, but they were never uh, immutable and they were never, um, um, what's the word that I'm missing? 
permissionless, right? So the nice thing with blockchains is when they're public, such a, you know, famous examples, Bitcoin, Ethereum, anybody can interact with them. <coughs> you don't need to, <coughs> excuse me, let me clear my throat really. You don't need to uh, verify who you are. Um, you don't need to send in a resume and apply. You don't need to open a bank account, right? You can interact with these um, permissionlessly. That's how they're built. And that's because it's computer code that runs on a network of nodes. And, you know, basically these nodes are all designed equally. Um, that's how the network is set up. And so they all work together in different ways to verify transactions are true and correct, right? And so this is where this uh, using cryptography comes in rather than centralized authority. Basically, both of those are sources for truth, in quotes, but the way we do it in Web3 using cryptography is um, it's an egalitarian network of computers that talk to each other based on rules that were set out. And as long as they all agree, that means everything's good. If they start to disagree, then that means somebody's trying to do something fraudulent and then those uh, transactions get canceled. And so that's how the network kind of protects itself. That's the idea behind that. Um, um, that was a pretty pretty long, <laughs> pretty long <laughs> definition of cryptocurrencies, but I think you guys got it. Yeah, it was pretty well broken down. I kind of liked it. And I'm pretty sure I speak for everybody here. Well, that, that directly leads us to the next thing, right? Now that you've said uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, these are coins and then you have tokens and everybody's yeah. confusing themselves with coins and tokens. So if you could like just do a quick, like, you know, difference, tell us the difference yeah. between the coins and tokens. Yeah, this is a super good question. So I actually um, had to think about that a minute. So, be, uh, and, and, uh, and you'll see, why in a second so the general definition is that a coin is a coin or let's say a token is a coin when it has its own blockchain so bitcoin has its own blockchain right ethereum has its own blockchain so it's a coin however what ethereum allowed us to do very easily is launch a bunch of tokens so you know there's a page where you can go and probably there's probably several and now but ever since, well, maybe not ever since Ethereum existed, but at least since like 2015 or 16, you were able to create your own token on that runs on the Ethereum blockchain within a few clicks. It takes like no time, 10 minutes and you're done. Um, and then you can transact these tokens using the Ethereum blockchain. <clears throat> but so that's why you would call these tokens because they, they're ERC20 tokens. ERC20 is a standard that um, Ethereum uses. Um, but like, if you want to send a transaction of this token to somebody else, the the distinguishing difference is you have to pay the gas fees in Ethereum, right? You cannot pay for the transaction using the token itself. Um, and so that's your that's your easiest telltale if something's a token or a coin. Um, if you have to pay gas in something else, right? Um, but then it gets more complicated, I guess. But I don't know if it's so important because there was blockchains that were um, like Luna, you know, famously flamed out. But on the Luna blockchain, you actually, or on the uh, Terra, in the Luna Terra ecosystem, you actually paid gas fees with UST. So in a way, UST would have been the coin and Luna the token. But, you know, whatever. It gets, it gets, there's interesting applications, let's just say, where it's sometimes hard to say which one's which. I don't think it's that important, um, but I think this general thing to know um, what you're paying the gas fees in, that's probably your, your easiest test to kind of make a decision. Um, and then of course, you know, some of these will, will, will remain tokens forever. So it's not every token's goal to become a coin. Um, that's really not necessary because um, the network effects that you have when you launch your token on Ethereum, for example, are very valuable and they're probably Depending on what you're trying to do, they're probably worth the price of paying Ethereum gas fees. Um, just because there's so many people already in that network and you have such an easier time reaching them. Um, but then you just have to, you know, your business model, and we'll get into that more. So like this goes now deeper into the tokenomics. Like the business model that you're trying to do or the goals you're trying to achieve with your project have to match um, what a token can do technically. 
so that it makes sense. Um, yeah, there was one other point I was trying to make, but I can't remember right now. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic, actually. Uh, again, a very, very nice rundown about that. Uh, but, you know, uh, like you were just talking about uh, how deep this thing goes and stuff. Uh, could you, like, you know, just brief us about the factors that are there? And then the important ones, if you could, like, you know, talk about it in detail. Yeah. Yeah, factors affecting tokenomics. So the first thing um, always is... I mean, there's really no limit, right? There's there's an unlimited amount of factors that can affect your tokenomics. Um, but when we when we try to design tokenomics, you always have to start from the ground up. Um, it's almost like, okay, what what are you trying to achieve? What what's your business model, or what's the goal of a community, or what's um, what value are you trying to create in the world? Um, and that's when then everything else follows, right? Because without value creation of a project, there really is, there's really no point to even start uh, tokenomics design. Uh, from our opinion, and we, you know, we're like hardcore, like we want it to be sustainable and, um, you know, we want it, we want to connect tokens to value, to real world value creation. We're not like in tokenomic style. We're trying to find the projects that are like Ponzi schemes and, uh, you know, be mindful of them. I guess there's nothing like we can do about them. <laughs> um, and and you can always you can also make a lot of money with them if you invest in them early. Um, but generally, we're trying to when we do consulting, for example, we you know we try to be responsible and guide our clients in the direction of uh, building long-term sustainable growth. But so that's so I'm just saying this as a disclaimer, um, and that's why we start as a that's why we start from the value creation and then everything else follows, right? But so okay, let's say, um, let's see, what's an example? Uh, I mean, Ethereum is always a really great example because everybody's familiar with it. Um, of course, there are more. There are other ones. So Ethereum is a layer one blockchain, right? So that means what we said before, it's a coin, right? Ethereum is a coin. You can pay for gas fees to transact on the Ethereum network with ETH. Um, but so what are you really paying for, right? You're paying to transact, but the network gives you security and um, this this like global decentralized verification of ownership. And that's really what you're paying gas fees for. So you're rewarding people or computers, I guess, to to keep these transactions like immutable and permissionless and safe and correct. Um, and then, of course, you can transact many different things, right? You can't just send ETH from one person to another. You can you can buy NFTs and you can uh, interact with smart contracts and you can uh, use Uniswap to buy any kind of other Ethereum tokens and so forth. Um, so there's a there's a whole ecosystem of stuff you can do, um, but it always comes back to you need to have ETH to pay for the transaction, right? And so this is very much the business model of the Ethereum blockchain, um, and that's I guess that that's how you would say that's how it makes money, right? Although there is not like a I guess like a business unit behind it that says oh we need to increase marketing to increase revenues, <laughs> um, like in the Web two world. Uh, in this network, Web3 network world, the way it works in case of a layer one blockchain is you try to get as many apps to build on your blockchain because that increases economic activity in general. And the more economic activity there is on your layer one, the more people will need to pay for transactions. And that automatically increases demand for the coin to pay for gas, right? So this is a... Um, I hope you guys were able to follow. So this is, the, I'm trying to break down, okay, what's the value creation in Ethereum? It is security, right? You're paying for security. You're paying the network. <clears throat> How do you increase value of the network? Well, you need to have as many nodes interacting as possible. That means you need to build as many apps on it or have as many smart contracts or all these things running on it because that's what organically creates demand for the coin because the more people are on there, the more they want to transact and so forth. And then the way this works, usually, you know, we enter these hype cycles. And then what happens is that um, ETH, in this case, will become more and more expensive. 
and there's actually some reflexivity is what that's called reflexivity that means when the price of the token increases people start paying more attention to it and they're like oh ETH is at four thousand dollars i should buy some <laughs> right so they and then because then they have to go and buy it that means they cause transa transactions in the network and that in turn actually increases demand right so there's a there's some positive like from an investor perspective there's positive reflexive loops uh, working here um and that's yeah that's what will drive the price and so but it's but it's so i tried to build it now my explanation up from the bottom like what's the value creation how does the tokenomics work in this case the core thing for eth is um the value it creates right that's why you need it um that's what creates demand is because you need it to be able to transact in the network. But then of course there are more factors, um, like what is the supply? What's the distribution? That means who owns how much ETH? Um, and then in newer projects, I think in ETH, that's probably uh, all bygones, but um, what is a vesting period or what are lockups, right? Like these are all concepts um, that we cover also in our content um, and tokenomic style. Um, that we can get into later. I just I don't want to just keep on rambling. I want to like put a little break here, and then we can talk about supply distribution vesting um, and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, guys, if you all have any doubts or if you all want to ask any questions, uh, feel free to unmute and ask. And uh, if you all can't, then make sure you'll you know uh, type it out on chat. I'll be reading them out. We'll take a slight pause here for a minute or so. Yeah, perfect. Uh, nobody, no doubts. <laughs> Interesting concept there on uh, reflexivity and stuff. Uh, ETH at $4,000, I'm so glad I did not buy any. <laughs> we all know what happened after that. Oh, no doubts, uh, anybody? Okay, we, we have somebody typing in the chat. Oh, uh, Annie Tree asks, if there are any reference resources to read about tokenomics, what would you suggest, Lois? Uh, yes, there are tons. So uh, our new website is still under construction. So I'm, I'm shamelessly going to plug all the content that we produce. <laughs> um, there's, of course, <laughs> there, there are there are other resources. So a really good follow on Twitter that's not part of tokenomics. So it's Nat, Nat Eliasson, I think is his name. So you can find him. Um, he's written really good stuff. He's uh, also doing tokenomics design, I think. Um, pretty famous account. And I think Packy McCormack also covers a bunch of tokenomics stuff. He's also a Twitter follow. Um, but then the type of content that we make in tokenomics style is really, um, we try to really build it from the ground up logically so that anybody can follow. So that's really our goal is to break this really complicated stuff down um, so that anybody can understand it and you don't need a PhD in economics to follow along. So that's that's the, the goal. And if you if if you think we're doing not a good job, then please give us feedback. But we're really we're really trying to explain this stuff as easy as possible. And that's why we create like these tokenomics diagrams for all projects um, that try to give you an overview of how this thing works in like one page basically. And then after the diagram, we basically do a written uh, breakdown of what you see in there and how. It, how it all relates and give additional information. So you go to tokenomicsdao.com. You can find the diagrams. This is currently our old website. So there's, but there's at least like 20 something uh, diagrams linked. And from those diagrams, you can always find the articles and we publish them on Substack. So tokenomics DAO, Substack, you can follow free. Um, uh, tokenomics DAO Twitter. We post every time we publish a new um, article. We also post threads about it there. Um, we have a podcast, so check on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Look for Tokenomics DAO. You can listen to me and Flo and Jason um, talking about tokenomics, and we also talk a lot about how we are building up our DAO because we're also currently designing our own token. Um, so we're putting a lot of thought into that. 
Um, and most recently, we've also started having guests on our podcast more often. So um, you can also hear about how other people are doing and how that relates to tokenomics. Uh, that's that's great. That's great, uh, Lovis. Actually, there are quite a few more questions here. Uh, well, the first one is uh, Annie Tree is asking you to type the name of the person you're supposed to follow on Twitter. Maybe oh, she sure. didn't get that. Uh, so yeah, please do that. Let me see. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me look up the. <coughs> I'll look up their handle really quick um, and then post them yeah. in the chat. Uh, guys, uh, we're just having like a uh, quick doubt clearing, uh, you know, uh, having some time for doubt clearation and stuff. So uh, if you'll have any doubts, then make sure to like, you know, unmute and ask or type it in the text uh, text box because I'll be checking it out. Thanks, uh, Lois. Yeah, Nat Eliason is the first one. Um, let me find the other one that's really good. Actually, McCormack, I don't know how to spell his name. There are a few more questions uh, from Aditya. Yep. Uh, his questions are uh, How many chains or projects has your DAO been able to influence? Uh, the scale of your impact on this space and any major names? Uh, so what you're asking for is um, reputation, and um, that, so just a general note on that. So you know, we definitely believe that our reputation is in the work we do and the value we create. Um, we're not big fans of, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're not we're trying to not be credentialist at all. And so like when people come in and they say, "Oh, I'm Mr. So and So, and I've worked at Amazon and Google and blah blah blah." We typically don't like those people um, because we think it doesn't matter, right? I don't care where you went to university. Um, I don't care what's on your resume. When you show up to our DAO, what I care about is what you, what the value that you can create. So if you if you can read and write English, then that's pretty much all you need to be able to start um, helping out and contributing. But so, yeah, we've done consulting projects. I think the most common one, and so we're still pretty new, right? Like our DAO has only started in January, February. Um, the biggest one that I've supported um, was a company called Entropy, um, and we've done a really interesting project with them, but it's not public because they have decided actually to wait because they were like, well, it's a Web2 company, right? And they're trying to bring something into Web3. And as you can probably understand, Web2 companies have to be very careful when they approach this because they don't want to be regarded by their investors, by the traditional VC investors as Oh, they're just trying to, you know, do something Web3 just to, you know, make money and create some hype. So they're very careful, right? So we're uh, often under NDA and are not really allowed to discuss details. Um, but what happens very frequently is that Web2 companies who have a working business model approach us and say, hey, how do we bring this into Web3? Um, and how do we do a token design that, you know, allows us to create a community around this and um, use incentives in a smart way that increases use of a product and so forth? Um, one light paper that we've published that's, that is public is uh, from BankDAO. BankDAO is, was created by a bunch of um, American pro athletes, like in the NFL and basketball players, NBA and stuff. And they have decided that they want to create a bank that helps um, their community not go broke. And so what happens with pro athletes is they make a lot of money um, but they also they usually spend more, and so often at the end of their careers, uh, they end up broke. And so they want to. Um, this happens a lot. It's like 80% of them end up broke. Um, and so they they were like, well, it's because there's very shitty education, how, you know, financial literacy. Um, there's not very any good products that help you invest your money in an easy way. And so they they want to address all this. And so they're creating this uh, bank that's owned by a DAO by the community and. We've helped them design their incentive system for that, the membership levels, the investing distribution schedule, 
um, all that stuff. <coughs> so you can find that if you just Google Bank DAO, you'll find their uh, light paper. Um, yeah, the biggest name that we're working with is, uh, I'm also not allowed to disclose, they told us specifically, um, but it's a large, originating in Silicon Valley, large company. If you're on the internet, you're probably using one of their products. Um, and yeah, and so forth. But very frequently, we don't do like full on tokenomics designs. Um, often our clients actually are trying to create their own tokenomics. They've already invent, invested quite a bit of time and they ask us to do a review. And so these are smaller projects. They usually only run like one or two weeks. And we just look through their documentation and we give them a bunch of, try to give them tips on what to improve. And we ask them very critical questions. And um, yeah, sometimes the clients like it. <laughs> it depends what their goals are, right? Sometimes they get um, annoyed with us because we point out all the, the flaws because designing these systems is not easy. And um, many entrepreneurs, or businesses think they can like, well, you know, we have the smartest people in the world. We can do this. It's like, yeah, I'm sure, you know, they can try, but it's an iterative process and the, and it also evolves really quickly. I mean, the whole space evolves super, super fast. And um, we had a conversation once, um, they're not our client, but we did talk to Pantera Capital once they reached out to us on Twitter and um, had a conversation and they said, well, the, uh, they thought, you know, Pantera Capital is a VC fund. They're like, oh, yeah, we can just fund all these Web3 companies. The tokenomics will just be plug and play, right? Best practices will just implement it. And they're like, oh, th that was super wrong. It turns out you need different tokenomics for each project um, because the technology evolves quickly, but the tokenomics evolves even faster than the technology because every new iteration of technology allows you to do 10x other variations of tokenomics, right? Because the tokenomics runs on top of the technology. So it's um yeah it's complicated we have done about let's say uh, good question uh it's, it's less than 10 pro uh, paid projects yeah but it's it's in that it's in that area eight or ten something like that um we're still very much in the beginning like i said we're building we're currently working mostly with builders so people who want to build their own uh tokenomics but we're also working on creating DIY tools so that it's not always has to be a, a consulting project, but we want to really teach people how to do this, give them our tools and give them our knowledge on doing it, um, on doing it themselves. And also I want to really start working on um, the investor side. So kind of create a tokenomics analysis service for investors to help make them better investment decisions. Um, I think that that's the bigger market because everybody can be an investor. Not everybody can be a builder. Um, but of course we want to, I, I'm not hundred percent sure about the format yet because we don't just want to be another, you know, paid subscription newsletter because there's already so many of them and most of them are scams. So we don't want to get into that. Um, but I know that there's a, yeah, there's a large market that we need to address still. Yeah. Uh, pure intentions going to make it big someday and I'll be there to see it. Can't wait for that. Cool. Actually, uh, there are a few more doubts, but. You know, let's uh, take that up after we, like, you know, just continue with the session a little bit and then let's take up a few more doubts. Sure. Uh, so uh, we've uh, finished about, you know, we finished talking about uh, the factors affecting tokenomics and stuff. Uh, could you, like, you know, talk to us about considerations regarding the token supply and, like, again, the demand, the model types, the inflationary, deflationary, and all of that? Because some of the people, they don't understand, right? Uh, right now, there's this discussion going on saying that Ethereum is going to become inflationary after the merge or deflationary. They don't even know uh, what it is about, right? Yeah. Uh, the token supply and all of that. So if you could like give us a quick rundown of all of that. Yeah, 100%. Um, so let's see. I'm just posting the last few links here in the chat <coughs> that I had mentioned. Um, yeah, so one big part of the tokenomics design and that's um that's important if you're a builder or an investor as is, is an investor that's probably the easiest thing to figure out to research and find um, well maybe not the easiest but it's the most important is that um supply schedule which is sometimes it's called a vesting distribution schedule something like that but basically 
what are, that means, so we're trying to figure out what are the general parameters of a token, right? So what is the overall supply um, that will ever exist? So to that's total supply. How many tokens will ever exist? If I live to be 300 years, how many of these will, will there be? In case of Bitcoin, famously, it's 21 million, right? I think almost everybody knows that. There will never be more. There will never be 21 million and one Bitcoins, right? Um, in fact, but then there's another concept. So how many of those are already in circulation? That number is smaller, obviously, than total supply. Um, in the case of Bitcoin, I think we're at, what, 19-something million. So that means there's only uh, 1.8 million or something Bitcoins left to be mined. Um, and excuse me if I'm not getting the numbers 100% right. Like I didn't look them up. It changes a little bit every day. But basically what that means is there is these, let's say, less than 2 million more Bitcoins are coming into circulation through an, a set-out process, right? And in the case of Bitcoin, it's proof of work. So that means people operating miners, they use a lot of electricity to um, secure the network. People have to pay for the electricity bills, and so they get Bitcoins as a reward, right, to, for securing the network. And so that's how Bitcoin becomes comes into the world is through this proof of mining, uh, sorry, proof of work mining process. Um, and then we know this halving concept. So every four years, the amount of Bitcoin rewards that miners get paid gets cut in half. And that invariably leads to an increase in price of Bitcoin because to cover their bills, uh, miners have to sell the Bitcoin. And if it doesn't cover the bills, they won't sell it. So that means there's a supply shortage and that then drives up the price. Um, Bitcoin is beautifully simple and it's a really good one to understand first, right? And then because all the other ones are pretty much more complicated. <laughs> um, Ethereum is currently in a state of transition, um, which is super interesting because there's a very good chance that this will only happen once in our lifetime, maybe. We're not sure. Who knows? But it's a, uh, Ethereum is, is a very impressively large network of active participants, and they're not all doing the same thing, right? And on Bitcoin, you can only do transactions from A to B. Um, there's not really any smart contract capability on Ethereum. There is, so that means you can do all kinds of different things. You can, you know, you can program a smart contract to do virtually anything, <clears throat> as long as you can find the data inputs and outputs. Um, Ethereum is transitioning from proof of work, where you know miners use electricity to verify the network, to proof of stake. Proof of stake means people put capital at risk, and they there's a much less uh, work intensive like process there's a lot that's a lot less work than the computer needs to do um, to verify transactions but the way they're creating trust is they say hey you have to lock up your eth and in this case to operate a full node you need 32 ethereum um, you you lock them in your node and then you get to verify transactions and if you make a mistake or you're trying to introduce fraudulent uh, transactions then the network will punish you, right? Because there's like hundreds of nodes operating at the same time. And if most of them say, no, this is a lie, then the person or the node that introduced the lie gets punished. So, so the Ethereum gets taken away. So they're trying to create trust by um, yeah, putting capital at risk. And if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you get rewarded. Right? And that's, a, that's called a staking yield. So you're staking, you're locking your tokens, you're staking them, right? You're putting them at stake. That means you're putting them at risk. And whenever you take a risk with capital, uh, you want to get a reward, right? Um, and in this case, the reward is going to be, nobody knows exactly, but it's 4 or 5% per year, something like that, um, that you get then paid in Ethereum. And if you make mistakes, then they will take your uh, Ethereum away. I I'm not sure exactly how the punishment is going to look. I don't think they will take all your 32 Ethereum right away for one bad transaction. Um, it's probably incremental. But but losing 32 Ethereum sucks, right? So like, there's definitely, there's definitely a good uh, incentive to not introduce fraudulent activity. Um, but yeah, sorry, I, get, I digress. So I explained proof of work, proof of stake. The total supply also is, or the supply dynamics is going to change with Ethereum's transition. So before, Ethereum was unlimited supply. That means just by the mining process, the 
the um the ethereum that people were paid to operate the miners the proof of work miners was actually minted right so it didn't come out of um uh, well it was created out of, out of nothing right so it was minted into existence and then given to the miners um and as long as you're doing that kind of in sync with the growth of the network then that's okay but if you say um you overdo that so you pay way too many mining rewards you increase the number of exist of tokens in circulation too quickly then that can also really adversely affect your price right so because if there's too much supply people start selling and then price goes down price in us dollars in this case or in any other fiat currency um but now with this transition to proof of stake um there's technically still no supply cap, right? It's not like Bitcoin where it was written in the code, oh, there can only ever be this many millions of ETH. Um, however, the the way the the ETH is introduced in the system changes. And so um, what has already happened is that Ethereum introduced um, a process where part of the transaction piece that people pay now get burned. Um, previously, they were all given to the miners as rewards, but now about 70% of them get burned um I, i'm trying to remember the website where you can watch that i think it's like feel the burn or something i don't know i need to google it and i can post it in the chat in a few minutes but you can see live how many eths are being burned and burning means they're taken out of creation right it's, it's the opposite of minting minting is create new uh, burning is destroy um so we so they, that means they've reduced the amount of new ETH that gets into circulation already, right? And so what will happen after the merge is that the rewards that um, miners get paid uh, will be modified um, to where actually they will not mint new ETH as rewards. It, the, the people who are then operate nodes will get rewarded just purely on the transaction fees. Um, and they will get rewarded on the transaction fee portion that doesn't get burned, right? So the reward is much smaller. However, they also the expenses have also gone down by a factor of I don't even know a hundred or something, right? Because before you have to buy expensive mining hardware, um, and now with the proof of well not now but in a couple months, with proof of stake, um, anybody can operate Ethereum node on any laptop. Right? You don't need like super expensive hardware. Um, you could probably even set it up on a virtual server that you just rent for, you know, five dollars a month or something. Um, however, the investment now is not the hardware. The investment is the 32 ETH that you need. And so this again, though, it does something to supply, right? So if a lot of people decide, hey, I want to earn four or five percent per year on my investment, and it's an easy process, right? So I can just stake my ETH and I earn 5%, um, that means probably many hundred people will, or thousands or whoever, whatever, hundred thousands maybe, will want to own 32 ETH so they can operate a node. So that again impacts supply, right? So it impacts demand, right? So it impacts demand because people will want to buy these and then they lock them up. And while they're locked up, they can't be sold. So that means they're taking, effectively, they're taking out of circulation. Um, so this is how, in the case of the ETH transition, we have a shifting dynamic in supply. So the supply will be, the, the newly introduced supply will be cut down dramatically. The demand for ETH should go up because it introduces a new reward mechanism. Um, and through the combination of all these things, um, yeah, many think that Ethereum will become what they call ultrasound money, which is like highly deflationary so there'll be less of it every year um but there'll be more demand for it if you're a, if you're a gambler if you're an investor this is a dream setup to see if you you know if, if if price will increase nobody knows for sure but you know looking at the history of these things there's a good chance it will um, none of this is financial advice i'm just talking about tokenomics uh dynamics and incentive design right and when you look at the incentives and then you think huh this might influence people's decision making a certain way, and if it does, you know, then price should go up accordingly. Um, yeah, there's much more. There's much more simple uh, supply demand uh, characteristics. Like this, this whole uh, transition is actually quite complicated. Um, 
usually you can look at if you look if you have very little time and you're trying to investigate a token or a project look at their supply and distribution schedule look what the total supply is look at what the currently circulating supply is if there's a very large gap that means a bunch more tokens have to be introduced into the system and typically that means price will go down right because you need buyers for these new tokens so then it's like okay when are they going to come into circulation is it going to be all at once or is it little by little and that's when you look at the vesting and distribution schedule so you know who owns them you know then you know okay 10 percent of these tokens are held by investors uh, 25 percent by the community and so forth but then you have to think okay when will these people be allowed to sell them that's when you look at the vesting schedule okay so investors got 10 percent of total supply but they actually can't touch them they can't move them until a certain amount of time has passed and that's called vesting so let's say it's a four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff, right? That's a very typical uh, model. So one-year cliff means in the first year, they, have, they get zero. They have nothing, right? They, have, they own them in principle, but they cannot touch them. They can't move them. After one year, they get 25%. Um, and then it's a question, okay, does it unlock all at once? Um, or is it, is, it, um, month, you know, is it like a monthly breakdown? So maybe after one year, they get um, 2% of their supply unlocked every month, for example. And so however this dynamic plays out, like there's a million different ways to do this, but these are the, these are the factors you want to look at. Um, and then make judgment calls. Okay, if this much more supply comes into circulation, <coughs> excuse me, how quickly does the process, project have to grow that demand will keep up with supply? Because if it doesn't, there's a bad effect for price and so forth. I think this is, uh, yeah. I think I covered a lot. I don't want to overdo it. Um, I hope I hope my points were clear. Uh, yeah, 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 indeed, they were actually pretty good. Uh, guys, uh, any doubts regarding this? I think uh, this indeed was a little too much information to take in. Uh, hey, Ajay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, all right, I think we'll just uh, do a couple more doubts before we, like, you know, try, uh, before we finish the last part that we were talking about. Um, well, uh, Aditya asks, what's your opinion on Axie Infinity's tokenomics, if you are familiar with it? And also, what do you think Web3 games should be careful about going forward in terms of tokenomics? Game uh, game tokenomics is a super interesting field. Um, there was a uh, I I am I'm not super deeply familiar with Axie. I, I haven't done the um, analysis myself, but we have published some articles where it's mentioned. Um, one of them is called I think token flow analysis, <clears throat> where we try to introduce a model for token flow in general. And I think Axie was the example we used in that in that article. Um, when you so what I was just covering, right? When you look at the Axie project, look at total supply of the token that's going to be um, in existence, and then well, also be mindful there's several tokens, right? There's a the Axie token, and then there's a SLP, I think Smooth Love Potion or whatever it's called. And one of them, um, if I remember correctly, one of them is like your in-game currency, and the other one is supposed to describe kind of like the overall project value. Um, but so when you look into the Supply dynamics, um, and I can't remember which one. I think uh, Axie, the AXS, is there's going to be, let's say, I don't know the numbers, right? But let's say there's going to be uh, 1 million tokens, and then you see, oh, only 200,000 of them are in circulation right now. Uh, just as example numbers, right? So that means 80% more of the supply will be introduced into the market at, over time. And then you have to think, wow, to keep up with all that new supply, that means that we need a lot more players, right? We need a lot more people to join this game who will buy it. Um, and then you just have to decide for yourself, well, do you think that they will find these, like, uh, what, uh, 5x more people to buy all these tokens to keep the price, just to keep the price steady, right? Um, to make the price go up, probably need a lot more. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... Uh, my personal opinion of Axie is I've, I haven't played it, but I think in general, I think that these um, games are super cool. I think there's uh, a huge future for that industry. I don't think that any of them have figured out 
uh, sustainable tokenomics yet. But there's also a caveat, and we talked about this in one of our recent podcast episodes. Uh, game designers actually know, and this is way before Web3, right? Game designers know that the in-game currencies will fail. Um, th th there isn't a single in-game currency that hasn't failed yet. And um, there's a really interesting discussion that we had on the podcast about that. And uh, games, in a lot of ways, are just a, a micro ecosystem that also are fairly not no, of course not not a hundred percent, but maybe sixty seventy percent comparable to the real world. There isn't a single fiat currency that hasn't failed, right? Um, historically, so currencies in general are super interesting because they only work for a certain amount of time. Um, so yeah, just having that in mind, right? So I think it's it's cool to play these games um, and make the money while you can, like if you're into play to earn or something, but just be mindful that they're probably not good long-term investments. So if you're making money, awesome, go and invest it in something else <laughs> um, or pay the bills, right? I mean, that's super valuable as well. Um, but just don't, I, I would personally, I would not invest in a portfolio of Web3 games right now, expecting them to do great over the next 20 years. I think that's probably not a good idea. Uh, also, uh, come to think uh, about you know uh, the the uh, total supply. Uh, if a total supply is already capped as of right now, can it be changed? Like you know, if the community suddenly decides to like you know up that number, like you know, or decrease the total supply, so many uh, tokens are gonna be in circulation. Like, can they like do it? Uh, after a vote or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, depends on the, <clears throat> I guess it depends on the logic they put into the smart contract or how the thing was created. Um, if it's a token that runs on Ethereum, for example, and, and during the creation, they set a hard cap. Um, and they've, you know, they've done that with whatever proper programming practices and solidity uh, which is the programming language for smart contracts on Ethereum, then to my knowledge, they cannot change it because to change it, they would basically have to break the Ethereum network and that's not going to happen, right? I mean, not going to happen. Who knows? Maybe within our lifetimes, we'll see it, but I think it'd be, if it happens, it'd be very expensive <laughs> for whoever does it. Um, now, if it's their own blockchain and or, or say it's not even their own blockchain, let's say it's... Um, maybe they didn't even write it into the smart contract, right? So maybe this is a DAO, they've launched their own token, and they just say in the light paper, hey, this is the total supply will be this, um, and it can only, only be changed by governance vote. Well, then that means those are the rules, right? So then that means if there's a governance vote um, who, who votes for increasing supply, then they absolutely can. Um, so this, So you just have to see, like, who is upholding that? Who is upholding that promise, right? If it's secured by something like the Ethereum network, then I'd say that's a pretty solid bet. Uh, if it's just a couple of people agreeing on something, well, people <laughs> people can change their mind. <coughs> so yeah, depends is the answer. Perfect. And uh, uh, just want to know your thought on how important ICOs are. Um, well, so ICOs are, the, it's a fundraising mechanism, right? So fundraising mechanisms in general uh, are super important and they're super cool. And that's actually probably one of the, one of the most interesting innovations that Web3 brings, right? It becomes a lot easier for people who want to build something or who want to create a, a community around something to raise capital to do so. Um, of course, unfortunately, this also makes it so that it's easier to scam people. Uh, a lot of people end up fundraising on something and it's six massively successful, surpasses their expectations. And then they see themselves confronted in a situation where there's, let's say, I don't know, $10 million uh, sitting there and they have control over it. And then it's up to their own moral, ethical integrity to not misuse that money, right? Um it, that's hard, right? I mean, that's a hard challenge for anybody because if it's life-changing money, like why won't you just take it and, and change your life? <laughs> you know. So it's so again here you have to look at what's the what's the mechanism. Um, once I 
give money or invest? Uh, how am I protected as an investor? It's important to ask these questions. Um, fam- you know, not, I mean, I was going to say famously, I'm not famous, but Celsius Network, right? Tons of people uh, deposited Bitcoin there to earn uh, interest, myself included. And I have to admit, I didn't fully understand um, how they were going to protect my deposit. I didn't even think of it as an investment in Celsius, right? But it turns out the the contracts that I agreed to in the terms of service are actually are structured in such a way that I'm a I'm an investor. I'm a I'm a uh, I'm get well I'm giving them credit, right? So I'm I'm like a bank and I'm giving them credit, and it turns out it's not secured. So that means <coughs> um, Celsius going bankrupt means that me my the credit that I gave them is most likely lost. So that sucks. Um, ICOs, of course, are different. ICOs are not done very frequently anymore because they have a lot of legal uh, problems. There's other launch mechanisms now, like bonding curves and uh, blah, 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 that are supposed to be more fair for communities and also supposed to yield better results for the project and also have better protection for investors. Um, yeah, but ICOs were definitely the driver of the hype in 2016, 17. I think they happen a lot less now because every, nobody wants to get in trouble with the SEC. Um, but like I said, this is just a name for a fundraising mechanism and fundraising in Web3 is is awesome, right? It's super cool because you have such an uh, engaged community who is willing to put their money behind ideas. And I think that that in itself will, that alone will make it so that the space will be incredibly successful. Um, but we do, of course, have to find ways where it's, where investors are still protected on some level. Lovely, lovely. Uh, Lois, uh, before we wind up, just want to take a, uh, like, you know, I wanted you to talk about return on investment. Because, yep. uh, you know, we had quite a few people come up and ask a few questions, even to the previous uh, speakers that we've had over. They were like, uh, you know, uh, Okay, I'm buying so and so coin, so and so token. I just want to know, like, you know, how from where the money comes, like, you know, and uh, how much am I, like, you know, in short, uh, what am I going to yep. receive holding the token in short? In short. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, it's a super good question, right? I could probably talk about this for at least an hour. Um, this is this is kind of like the combination of all all the things we just talked about, and there's no general answer for each and every one of these. Uh, there's for each and for each project, it's different, right? <coughs> Where does the money come from? Um, depends, right? There's famous examples like Dogecoin. Dogecoin was created as a or Dogecoin, however you say it. Dogecoin um, was created as a joke. It's just a uh, it's a fork of Bitcoin where the person changed a bunch of the, the variables, how the, how the proof of work, proof of work mining works. Um, and through that, we're able to launch and create their own uh, dog currency. <laughs> um, and then the craziest thing about that is not that this person did it. The crazy thing is that people actually bought it. Um, but there's, there's no value, right? There's no value creation, um, and it, and it's all. There's also it's also not claimed to be valuable, right? The guy who's who started it is like, no, this is a joke. Like, you know, like Shiba, you know, like dog, you know, dogs are cute. Like, buy my buy my token, buy my coin. Um, <clears throat> and so what you see in the price development, if you look at it over a couple of years, is that it spikes and then it goes back down, then it spikes again and then it dies, then it spikes again and then it dies. Um, the the uh, uh, supply of Doge is is hyperinflationary, so we're adding, I think I forget, I looked it up once, but we're adding like a couple of hundred millions of new uh, coins every year. Um, miners get a bunch of these. Uh, of course, the you know token value is really low; it's only a couple cents or fractions of a cent. Um, but what you can see in that price and what I'm talking about is is purely driven by hype. Right, so there's like new investors might come into the market and find this listed on their Coinbase app or something, or on um, a you guess of CoinDCX in in India, but I don't know if it's I don't know if Dogecoin is listed there. I've never never checked. 
Um, but like in the US, another famous trading platform was Robinhood, right? And they also listed Dogecoin. Um, but then it's, and so the people come in and they see, oh, this is really cheap. Why don't I just buy a uh, hundred million of these, right? That's way more, then I get way more than if I buy, uh, you know, 0 0.01 Bitcoin. So it sounds, it just sounds more interesting. And so then, then people start creating memes like, whoa, like Doge to $1, right? So, and then they post it on Twitter and it goes viral and people go crazy and they buy it. But so this is all hype. There's no actual value creation. There's nothing you can do with Dogecoin, nothing. Um, but if you are smart and you've been in the game for a long time, then you can see these price developments and you see, ah, oh, uh, social media activity is increasing. Let's, let's buy some Doge and hold it for a couple of weeks. And, you know, many people have made a lot of money doing that. But what you're doing is you're basically tricking uh, newcomers, right? Because they don't know yet. They'll they'll find out. <clears throat> they'll find out the Doge won't go to one dollar, but um, it'll take them a couple of rounds of lessons. <laughs> so in this case, where does the money come from? Yeah, it's newcomers to the market. It's a it's a complete Ponzi scheme, right? It only works uh, if new people enter their money. Um, with Ethereum or more established blockchains where there's real value creation, um, it's quite a bit different because it ends up creating its own circular economy uh, to some degree, right? To some degree. <coughs> um, it's not perfect, right? There's still always a, there's always a desire in our space that we want more money to flow in from the outside because, of course, that's the easiest way to increase valuations. But ideally, we get to a stage where... Um, it's a circular economy, which means I provide value with like service or product and I get paid for it, right? And um, and I get paid in proportion to the value I'm creating for my customers or for my, my community. And usually the way it works in business, even like outside of Web3 is you have to create about 10 times the value that you ask them to pay for it. So if I'm a consultant and I help a company make a million dollars, then I can easily ask for $100,000 in annual salary because I've created 10 times the value, right, that I'm asking for. And if we get to that stage in Web3 where stuff that survives ends up being super valuable to users, like it, it addresses a huge uh, pain point for them and people will happily pay for it, then we eventually get to a stage where it's um, sustainable. And then if each of these projects that are sustainable have a token and they've done their tokenomics well, then the token value of that project should increase over time, right? But if they did their tokenomics poorly, that means the value creation of the project is not actually connected to the token. You don't actually need the token to access the value creation, for example. Then, um, then it might still work, but it's a loose connection, right? It's just a, it's um, there's no real mechanism driving up that value. Um, if you say, uh, let's say Maker, MakerDAO, right? They created uh, a stable coin called DAI. And they have it in their tokenomics in, for the Maker token, right? DAI is a stable coin. So if you hold one DAI, it's supposed to be worth $1. But if you hold MKR, then you're holding the, the token of the DAO. And basically MKR's tokenomics works in such a way that if the DAO does good decisions for DAI, like if they loan money to people who will actually pay it back, <laughs> then the value of Maker will increase over time. If the Maker DAO loans money to people or institutions that will not pay their loans back, then the value of Maker will decrease. And so, and it, and it's and that's programmed, right? This is not anybody's opinion. There's mechanisms that they've set out and programmed in the smart contracts that will make that happen. And at that point, it's out of their hand, right? It's not going to. They will not be able to influence it with a vote. Um, very easily. There are parameters in that tokenomics that they can influence with the vote, but not how it affects burning and minting of, of Maker. <clears throat> we wrote a uh, uh, tokenomics 101 article about MakerDAO. Um, one of our community members did it and I helped him edit it. It's on Medium, so you guys can check that out. Uh, so again, the, the answer, unfortunately, is it depends, right? Where does the money come from? How's the return on investment? You do have to judge each individual project uh, on its own merit and its own tokenomics. There's no universal answers. Um, but if you're new to this, starting with looking at supply-demand distribution schedule is the is is first place to start. Um, and then dive down the rabbit hole from there.
Um, lovely, lovely. Uh, guys, uh, we're going to be winding off in a couple of minutes. Uh, if you'll have any doubts, if you'll have any doubts regarding anything that happened in, uh, uh, throughout the entirety of the session, make sure, like, you know, to clear it off now, because why not, you know, because um, Lovis has, you know, obviously taken out his time and he's come to be here with us. I, I really think that you all should make the most of it. Uh, uh, any doubts, guys? I think we'll wait for a little while. Lovis, I had a question. Uh, can I ask? Yeah, uh, in your opinion, like, uh, Web3 still arguably hasn't seen mainstream adoption, right? So which section or which niche of Web3 do you think is going to hit it uh, the first? Do you think it's DeFi, gaming, uh, or just value transition? What's your opinion on it? That's a, that's a good question. <clears throat> yeah, so we're, we're still very much in the beginning. Um, somebody had a really good analogy. They said if if uh, Web3 was uh, was a smartphone, we would still be 10 years away from the iPhone, right? So if you like, if you compare the the timeframes, so right now we're all using like Nokia and like Blackberries and stuff, and it works, right? And they're good, but not <laughs> but they're not an iPhone. So um, so to, just in general, so I think being in this space is absolutely the right place. That's also why I'm you know I'm betting my own career and st- not I'm not like you know, not betting my career on it, but I'm happy to be in the space and I want to be in the space because I think it's going to have massive growth. Yeah, yeah, same, same. Um, <clears throat> Which one will take off first? Well, I mean, clearly there's something here with Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? That's the easy answer. Uh, the store of value, I think, um, argument for Bitcoin, I think is, is, uh, is valid. The time frame that you need, though, to be able to stomach the volatility, is, it has to be high, right? You have to be able to hold it for, say, let's say 20 years, right? If you're willing to hold Bitcoin for 20 years, I don't think you're going to have a bad outcome. Um, and with Ethereum, probably the same. But Ethereum is a completely different animal, right? I mean, it's a whole ecosystem um, of stuff. I think DeFi is for sure a, is, is very innovative and revolutionary. I think the idea of being able to uh, make lending and borrowing decisions based on like uh, permissionless decision making. I think is novel, and I think it's something that the world wants because I think traditional credit systems, um, yeah, discriminate. They're biased. You know, they they, they suck. Right. <laughs> so the people that need the money the most will usually not get it. Um, now I don't. I'm not sure if. Web3 is is able to solve all that, but I think we can make steps in the right direction. Um, at the moment, usually, you know, lending, for example, works like, oh, you have to put collateral. And then, so like I say, Ethereum is your collateral, and then you get stable coins instead. It's like, yeah, okay, that's, that's super cool. That really is cool. But if I'm poor, then I also don't have Ethereum, right? So how am I supposed to how am I supposed to get to the stage where I say hey I, I need to buy a house so I, so I have a home for my family how can I get the money um, that's yet like not that. that's not answered it's not answered yet right um, but I think it can get there because I think so and this ties it all together because I think stuff like uh, play to earn is maybe not the best example but learn to earn or you know work to earn that's kind of what we currently have in our economy. <laughs> um, I think that I think these things will be transported into Web3, and that will that me, makes it so that people soon will be able to work completely in the Web3 ecosystem, like having all their finances there, right? Getting paid there for their work, um, being able to invest, being able to borrow, and all these things. And so, so overall, I I am convinced it'll work out, and it'll become. Uh, I actually think it'll become the dominant system that people will transact in not government-run systems, or or maybe there'll be a hybrid between those two, there'll be intersections. Um, but yeah, if I had to pick a sector, man, that's super hard. I The nice thing is that in Web3, you can buy the underlying protocol, right? So so this whole thing we've just been discussing, what's most, most of it is built on Ethereum um, and a couple other layer one chains. So if you just want to own that whole trend, honestly, just buy the layer ones, right? That's a... Because then if DeFi does super well and most of it runs on ETH, 
uh, on Ethereum, then you'll then you'll do you'll do good holding Ethereum. <coughs> uh, so as a as a conservative investor, probably owning the layer ones is is a good step. And then a small amount of your portfolio could probably be directly in protocol in like DeFi tokens or something like that. Um, but I would invest a lot less into those. But then if they do go 100x or 1,000x, then that's still awesome, right? Um, but picking a space is, is not really possible for me right now.